Daniel chapter 6. I'll read the entire chapter. Please give your attention to God's holy word as it is read. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, The counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree, Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days... Except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. And the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, 
O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, in the early months of 2020, almost two years ago, right as the COVID-19 virus was beginning to spread, there were many leading sources that cited a statistic that projected that 2 million people in the U.S. would die of COVID unless we did something very drastic. So that statistic led to 15 days to slow the spread, as most state and local uh, municipalities locked down, required masks and social distancing. With the exception of certain essential services, uh, many businesses shut their doors, including many churches. Though there were some churches that defied the order, claiming that the Bible requires the church to gather for worship and Christians ought to obey God rather than man. Now, I bring this up not to debate the usefulness of or the constitutionality of the lockdowns, but to show that there will always come a time in our lives, in a Christian's life, where they will come to a crossroads, a decision point, whether to obey God or to obey man. And that's what we see here in this scenario in Daniel chapter 6. As Daniel's devotion to his God comes into conflict, with obedience to the state. What does one do when that happens? How do we balance living in two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men? Well, for Daniel, the decision was an easy one. Not easy in the sense that it was without peril, but it was easy for him to make. He stood his ground and remained faithful to his God. And I hope that when it's all over and said and done, that we will see here from this passage that God delivers his faithful servants from the hands of wicked men. Well, first, let us look at verses 1 1 through 3 as we see here the preeminence of Daniel. 
As with last week, we're not sure how much time has elapsed between uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's probably not a lot of time. And at the end of chapter 5, you remember, Darius the Mede had conquered the Babylonian Empire, and he came in and he slew King Belshazzar. Now there's some debate in the scholarship as to who Darius the Mede is, because this name does not figure very prominently in the surviving records. Now there's basically three answers that you can give to that question, who is Darius the Mede? Some will argue that Darius is not a name, but is a title, sort of like Caesar, or sort of like Pharaoh. So Darius is a title of royalty. Others will argue that Darius is the throne name for Cyrus the Persian, a name that he was given when he was ruling over Babylon. And then they will argue that when we, what that last verse that we read in chapter 6 should read that in the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Finally, some will argue that Darius is the designation of someone named Gubaru, a Babylonian defector who aided in the conquest and was placed as governor of Babylon. Now, I don't have a strong opinion over any of these three. I probably lean toward one of the first two as opposed to the third. But the point is, is that with any hostile takeover that we have here, there's always a shakeup and a reorganization of the existing power structure. And that's what we see in the first two verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. So, so Darius is setting up, he's taken over everything, and he's setting up this structure. He's got this 120 satraps, and then over them, three governors, and then the king, of course, is at the top of the pyramid. Now, as verse 3 states, Daniel was so distinguished among the governors himself that Darius was to the point of making him sort of ruler over all, sort of the second in command over all things. Now, without going into too much speculation here, clearly God is working here, right? Clearly God is working the life of Daniel to give him favor in the eyes of Darius the king. Because how else would Daniel, a, a Jewish refugee who was also a very high-ranking official in the previous administration, find so much favor in the current administration? Right? Because typically common practice was to remove the current bureaucracy and replace it with people who were more faithful and loyal to you. But Daniel, in a relatively short period of time, was able to impress Darius. God was at work. It's very similar to the story of Joseph in, in Genesis, where Joseph continued to find favor in the eyes of those who were above him. God is providentially working things here to bring Daniel to a point in this chapter. God is at work here. And of course, for Christians trying to be faithful through adversity, the lesson here is quite simple, and that is to bloom where you're planted. We understand, of course, that God is sovereign in sovereign control over all nations, all kingdoms, all peoples. All nations rise and they fall, and God is in control of those things. 
But being citizens of a heavenly kingdom in Christ, our call is to, as far as possible, live peaceably with all men. And we can do that because Daniel's hope was not in Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's hope was not in Belshazzar. Daniel's hope was not in Darius. Daniel's hope was in the Most High God, who is ruler and kingdom over all of these things. And so should our hope be too. Well, moving on now to verses 4-9, through we see the plot against Daniel. And it appears here that even in the 6th century B.C., Medo-Persian political affairs, no one likes a teacher's pet. right? Daniel was the teacher's pet. Daniel found favor. And that riled and rankled some feathers. So the satraps and other royal officials were so jealous of Daniel's success that they sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. For whatever reason, these officials were not happy with Daniel's rise to success. So they went about seeking to find some skeletons in his closet. To find something they could take to Darius and say, look, you, your, your trust that you placed in, da- in Daniel is, is, a, is a misplaced trust. Now I say for whatever reason, but we know who the enemy of God and his people are, right? It is Satan. We know that Satan tempts to, to bring down God's people to, to work against the kingdom of God. And again, as Christians living in a hostile world, we need to be on our guard against those who seek to discredit us. But much to the disappointment of the jealous satraps, they could find no charge or no fault in Daniel because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. And another lesson here for Christians, right, is to live lives that are above reproach. To live lives that are above reproach. Because far too often we see high-profile Christians who are exposed for living lives which are inconsistent with their Christian profession. The lesson here for us is that our lives need to be so clean that they have to trump up charges against us. As Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If they're going to find fault in us, if they're going to find fault in our lives, let it be because of our Christian profession, not because of anything that we have done that is evil. So they couldn't find anything at fault in Daniel's life, but that doesn't stop them, right? Because evil never sleeps. The jealous satraps then resort to use Daniel's religion against him. Verse 5, These men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these jealous satraps, then they go before Darius the king, and they play on his ego. And the plan here is to present Darius with a proposal that anyone who wants to petition any god or any man must go through the king. It was a 30-day decree. Not sure why 30 days. I mean, that would kind of raise a little suspicion in me. Why only 30 days? But, and it played on the king's ego. The decree basically made Darius 
the only mediator between gods and man. That's what the point here was. And further adding to the deception was that these jealous satraps told the king that all of the royal officials were in on this. All of them were approved of this. And the implication was that supposedly Daniel was in on this too. Now this pleased the king as was its intention because you know, what, what wicked king does not like to have his ego stroked? So he signs the written decree to go ahead and put into place that 30-day decree. And now in verses 10 and 11, we see here Daniel's prayer. Well, like any obedient and loyal subject to the king, Daniel, when he wanted to petition the Most High God, he went to King Darius first, right? No, he didn't do that. He went to God in prayer. That's what we see in verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Now a couple things here to note. First, notice that this was Daniel's practice, right? It says, as was his custom since early days. So it wasn't like this thing happened and then Daniel goes to God in prayer. Daniel's always been going to God in prayer. This has always been his practice. But the second thing to notice, notice how even though this decree was signed that outlawed what Daniel was doing, Daniel still went to God in prayer. Now we shouldn't see this as Daniel sort of thumbing his nose at the king or that he was sort of like arrogantly defying the royal decree. Daniel was simply carrying out the biblical principle that it is better to obey God than to obey men. King Solomon, during his dedication of the temple, made a lengthy prayer to God in which he prayed at one point that if anyone in a foreign land turns to Jerusalem and bows down in prayer before Jerusalem, that God would hear his prayer and would deliver his people. And here, Daniel, in exile with God's people, prays. He goes before the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth. He goes before the covenant God of his people. And he prayed. And he did this, even though there was a decree in the land forbidding it. Why did he do this? Because it is better to obey God than men. Daniel was doing precisely what Jesus himself will teach about 500 years later when Jesus says in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Daniel, in disobeying the decree of Darius, runs the risk of being eaten by hungry lions. But, in disobeying the clear commands of God, he runs the risk of being cast into hell itself. And that's the calculus that believers have to make when trying to live faithfully in a hostile world. Not obeying the governing authorities in order to obey God, you may face severe penalties. You may face even death in some places. But that's the worst they can do to us, right? Right? Well, death seems pretty bad, seems pretty final, 
right? Death is kind of like the end of all things. But compared to what God can and will do to you in judgment, death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. And this was a choice that every single martyr in the history of the church has had to make. Save my earthly life and lose my soul, or lose my earthly life and save my soul. The choice was simple for them. Now, if you're an unbeliever, the choice is also simple, right? This life that I'm living is all I'm going to get. Preserve it at all costs. But if you're a believer, the choice is also equally simple. This life is but a prelude to a life that is far better that will come. Better to lose this life for the blessings and rewards of the life to come. It's a choice that requires faith. It's a choice that, uh, a faith that can look beyond this life and, and see with eyes of faith the promised life to come. And it's a choice that Daniel here makes with ease. But as with any stand of faith that we make, the enemies of God's people are right there to trap us. Because in verse 11, we're told that the jealous satraps found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Now make no mistake, this was a setup. This was a setup. Because there was no logistical possible way that they could monitor the entire kingdom to see who was disobeying this, this law. It was only made so that Daniel would disobey it and they could catch Daniel in the act. This law was designed to catch one and only one person, and that was Daniel. And that's what we see there in verse 11 as this jealous satraps found Daniel doing this, making supplication before his God. So that brings us now to verses 12 through 17 as we see the punishment of Daniel. So with their traps sprung and their quarry caught, the jealous satraps now almost, in a sense, you can almost feel the glee, right, that, that they're feeling. It's like, we caught him, we caught him. And they, they run before Darius and they're like, they go to the king to make it official. But they go there and notice how they preface their, their little speech to, to Darius. They sort of recite the stipulations of the royal decree. And the reason they do so is because they know Daniel has found favor in the eyes of Darius. So they want to make sure that Darius cannot back out of this decree. So they go up to him and they say, Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man except you shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king responds, of course, by saying, Yes, indeed I did sign a decree that did that. And it's unbreakable according to the law of the Medes and Persians. That's a phrase you're going to see multiple times in this passage. Well, now the jealous satraps let the other shoe drop. And they mention Daniel. Well, we found this Daniel, that guy who was one of the captives of Judah, perhaps revealing some anti-Jewish sentiment that they had. He has violated your command, O king. Now Darius realizes, he's like, oh, he has great sorrow. This brings great sorrow, as we see in verse 14. We even see the king here setting his heart on Daniel to deliver him working into the wee hours of the night, trying to find some kind of loophole that he can use to save him. But in verse 15, the jealous satraps remind the king that the decree is unbreakable. Know, O king, verse 15, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians 
that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't Darius sort of like an absolute ruler? He can just kind of make whatever laws he wants, that whatever he says would go? Well, for the most part, that would be true. But it seems here clear that the warning from the officials here indicates that if the king backed down, that it wouldn't go well for him. Because that's the basic rule of government, right? There are more people than there are rulers, right? <laughs> you know, and if, if, you, if you tick off enough people, they will revolt. So reluctantly, Darius carries out the sentence on Daniel in verses 16 through 17 as he is cast into the den of lions and then they take a stone and they roll it over the mouth of the den and they put a seal on it to make, it, to make sure that the sentence would be carried out. It's sort of like in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. We know that the good guys aren't supposed to be thrown into the lion's den, right? Daniel was faithful. Daniel walked blamelessly before God. He's not supposed to be punished. Again, if I were writing the story here, Darius probably would have found a loophole that would have saved Daniel in the 11th hour. It's like, I found something here that we can use to keep Daniel from being thrown into the lion's den. But that's not how God wrote the story. Because we can do all the right things and still be thrown into the lion's den. We could do all the right things and still be thrown into the fiery furnace. As one commentator on this passage wrote, this too is an important point for us to understand. God is not committed to our comfort. He is not committed to making our path through life smooth. He is committed to sanctifying us and demonstrating His own glory in and through us. And very often that commitment means He will subject earthen vessels to pressures that would certainly shatter us were His grace not sufficient for us. I think that's a very important thing to understand here. That God is not committed to our comfort. We are made for God's glory. God is not made for our comfort. And we can do all the right things, yet God will still put us into the fiery furnace, will still put us into the lion's den in order to glorify His holy name, in order to sanctify us, in order to, to bring us to the point where we continue to rely on Him in prayer. Again, think of someone like Jesus, right, who perfectly did all things right, that He still was crucified on the cross. And aren't you glad that He was crucified on the cross because we would not be here were He not crucified on the cross. So now finally, the vindication of Daniel, verses 18 through 28. So now Daniel's in the lion's den, and, this only, and, and the only consolation that Darius has is to entrust Daniel to his God in verse 16. And we see that the king himself is not having a good night. In verse 18, we see the king spent the night fasting. The king did not want any, to have anyone come and entertain him. He couldn't even sleep. This is the anxiety of the world. This is the anxiety of the unbeliever. There was no consolation for Darius. There was nothing he could do 
that, or, that would deliver Daniel out of this predicament. The king was powerless. There is nothing the world can do to deliver you. Here we see the most powerful man in the world at that time, completely helpless to save a loyal servant. Darius cannot shut the mouths of the lions no matter how hard he might want to. So the only thing Darius can do is fret the night away and, and he rushes back down to the lion's den the first thing in the morning and, and, and he cries out with a lamenting voice when he gets there in verse 20. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And again, note with a lamenting voice. Other translations say in anguish or with an anguished voice. And the question he asks here, has your God been able to deliver you? Sort of betrays the earlier confidence that he has when he entrusts Daniel to his God. And while Darius could not shut the mouths of lions, the Most High God can shut the mouths of lions and does shut the mouths of lions. You see Daniel's response in verses 21 and 22. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of lions so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Daniel says, My God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Now, is this just an angel or is this the angel of the Lord? You know, the angel of the Lord, typically we see that in Scripture. That is a reference to a pre-incarnate version of the second person of the Trinity or the, the Son of God. And it's unknown. But it's quite possible that this angel is identical to the mysterious figure that we saw in the fiery furnace in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the point here is that Daniel was vindicated. He was not only found innocent before God, but also innocent of any wrongdoing before Darius. And not only was Darius exceedingly glad that, that Daniel was delivered, but he was also rightly angry now that he was sort of duped by his, his royal officials. So we see in verse 24, Darius rounds up all of the conspirators and all of their families and has them thrown into the lion's den. And there was no angel there to stop the mouths of the lions as the lions overpowered them. It says it overpowered them before they even got to the bottom of the den. And just like Haman in the book of Esther being hung on his own gallows, here we see these conspirators were torn apart by the very same lions that they wanted to tear Daniel apart. God delivers His faithful servants from the hands of wicked men. Well, just like King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4, here we see Darius make another decree that everyone should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And this illustrates the truth that we see in Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Daniel's faith and integrity here motivated Darius and the Persian Empire to tremble and fear before the Most High God. And then finally, we see Daniel prospering. 
in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel's life was one of continued faith and integrity as he lived his whole life in exile. He lived his whole life in a metaphorical lion's den. And through it all, God had delivered him. Well, as Christians, we are all, in a sense, Daniel, right? We are all Daniel in the sense that we are living in an increasingly post-Christian world. Because the question is not if, but when will our faith be tested? We've seen it throughout 2020 with the lockdowns. We've seen it on social media as speech continues to be censored. And we'll see more and more of it as Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. If you are a Christian and you desire to live godly in this world, you will suffer persecution. When it comes time to make that choice, will you stand like Daniel? who feared and reverenced God more than men? Or will you succumb under the pressure of the world? I mean, just think how easy it would have been for Daniel when he heard the decree, 30 days, you know, and, and so on and so forth. He could have just waited the 30 days out. He could have said, all right, I just won't pray for 30 days. God will understand. No biggie, right? That's not what Daniel did. He made the choice. He made the choice to continue to be faithful to God because he knew that was better than obeying man. Now, if it were up to us, we'd all fail, right? We would all fail. Even Daniel, who is held up here for his integrity, was not perfect. We all have our moments, our breaking points, which is why I'm thankful I don't have to rely on my own perseverance to deliver me. It is God who delivers His faithful servants from the hands of wicked men. It is not us. It is not kings. It is not governments. It is not Congress. It is not the President. Because only Jesus Christ faced the fiery furnace. Only Jesus Christ faced the lion's den for us in our place. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Trust in Him alone. Rest in Him alone for your deliverance. Let's pray.